parable of the wicked tenants. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 879. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 9. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father, we come before you humbly asking for your grace. Asking that your Holy Spirit might lead us into truth this morning. Father, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes and would open our hearts to receive your truth. And to bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, and for his name's sake. Amen. In verse 9, Luke tells us that that Jesus began to teach the people in parables. And this is a familiar scene. It's a scene we have seen many times before. We are used to seeing Jesus teach the people in parables. But to understand Jesus' reason for telling this particular parable... We need to remember the the context. We need to remember what we have seen over the preceding chapter and a half. You'll remember that in chapter 19, Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem finally reached its climax as, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, clearly fulfilling the prophecy of, of Zechariah 9, clearly coming as the long-promised king, the one who would bring peace to his people. But someone unexpectedly, as we saw Jesus arrive in Jerusalem, we saw him weeping. Weeping over Jerusalem. Why? Because he knows that the people of Israel will reject him. He knows that, that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he knows that even as he comes to his own, even as he comes to those who have long expected his arrival, even those who, who long for the promised salvation, That he will come to his own, and his own will not receive him. 
That's exactly what we have seen play out in the passages that follows. We see Jesus in the temple. We, we see that prediction validated. For as Jesus stands in the temple day after day, rather than hearing his call to repentance, the leaders refuse to acknowledge him and even seek to destroy him. And it is at this point, as Jesus has been rejected by the leaders, that he tells this parable, the the parable of the wicked tenants. And what all that suggests to us is that Jesus intends this parable to announce and also to explain the judgment that is about to fall upon Israel. The the judgment that is going to come down on them because of their unbelief and disobedience. It's a hard saying, but I want us to look at it more closely this morning. Let us begin by by looking at the parable itself. Jesus begins, as he so often does, with a a familiar scene. He, He tells us that a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And in the economy of of Jesus' day, this would have been a familiar scene. Landowners often let out their land to to tenants. They would let it out to them almost as sharecroppers, that they would tend the land, that they would produce the harvest, and and they would then give that harvest to the owner, keeping a portion for themselves as their pay. It's how they were uh, 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 paid for, for tending the land. But the landowner was the one who owned the land. The landowner was the one who, who took the bulk of the harvest. And this is exactly the image that, that Jesus is portraying. But we have to understand that, that not only would this have been a familiar scene in the economy of Jesus' day, but it was also a scene that had a familiar symbolic significance. For the Old Testament prophets often spoke about the vineyard of God. They often said that Israel was God's vineyard. We, we see this, for example, in places like Psalm 80 or Isaiah 5, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 19. You could go on. There, there are time and again where the Old Testament prophets speak of, of Israel as God's vineyard. But what we notice is that Jesus is doing something slightly different here. He's using the image in a, in a slightly different way. And we see this in the way that he distinguishes between the vineyard and the tenants. In the Old Testament, it was God who tended the vineyard. The vineyard was Israel. But now, Jesus says that the, the vineyard has been let out to tenants. And this is significant because we're going to see that the tenants in the vineyard are going to have very different outcomes. The tenants are going to be judged while the vineyard is going to remain and that is that is important for us to recognize because what it means is that God's purposes for his kingdom God's purposes for his people they will be fulfilled but the judgment is going to fall on those who had been entrusted to be stewards of that kingdom so we'll have to understand what this means as we, as we seek to unpack this, this parable. And so let's, let's look at it again. Jesus says that there's a, there's a parable, there's a vineyard that he has let out to tenants. Obviously, God is the owner, the, the vineyard is Israel, and the tenants are the, the people of Israel, particularly the leaders of Israel who have been charged to be a steward of Israel, to be a steward of, of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven And notice what he says, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. 
And the fruit that the owner is seeking to collect, the, the fruit of the vineyard, represents obedience. It represents faith. It represents that obedience that flows out of faith. We, we know this from the Old Testament prophets. The, the fruit is love for God and love for neighbor. Or as Micah said, it is doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. This is what God requires. And this is what the Old Testament prophets said again and again, that the people were failing to bring forth. We think of an image like Isaiah chapter 5 where God says, I I planted a vineyard, I took care of it, but it has brought forth wild grapes. It has brought forth poor fruit. It has not produced the harvest that I was seeking. And what were those wild grapes? What was that unedible fruit? It's identified by Isaiah as, as bloodshed and injustice and oppression. The Lord was seeking for justice. The Lord was seeking for righteousness. The Lord was was seeking for mercy for those who loved God with all their heart and loved their neighbor as themselves. And yet the people brought forth bloodshed, injustice, and oppression. They, They failed to live as citizens of the kingdom. They failed to honor their king by the way they would live in his kingdom. They failed to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord's name. And this is what Jesus means when he says that the people refuse to give to the servants. The servants representing the Old Testament prophets who who would call the people to obedience, who would call the people to repentance, to turn from their sins and and to bring forth the fruits of righteousness. And time and again, the Old Testament people of God would, would reject the prophets, would, would treat them with contempt, would send them away empty handed. It's exactly what Jesus said. They, the tenants beat the servant and, and sent him away, not once, but repeatedly. Look at verse 11. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent a third servant, and this one they also wounded and, and cast out. And so the tenants refused to bring forth the fruits of righteousness. The tenants refused to honor God as their king. They, they, they refused to walk in obedience to him. And they, and they treat the servants whom he sends to them with utter contempt. This is Jesus' summary of God's chosen people's history. This is the history of, of Israel. This is the, the history of God's uh, relationship with his covenant People. It doesn't mean that there were not times of, of faithfulness. We know that there were. We, we see the, the stories of, of faithfulness throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus' overall assessment is an assessment of failure and faithlessness. The people of Israel, under the leadership of the priests and the scribes and the elders, they have failed to honor God as God. They have failed to, to live as His children. They have, they have failed to be His people and now their failure is reaching its climax in their rejection of the son and the rejection of of jesus christ the messiah this is exactly what stephen says in his speech before the sanhedrin he gives the same summary of israel's history he he says to the leaders he says you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ear, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. This is the history of Israel, the history of a people chosen by God, set apart for for blessing, who have instead refused to honor him as king. 
Like the nations of Psalm 2, they have shaken their fist in God's face and said, we will not be ruled by you. We will do what is right in our own eyes. We will go our own way. We will lean on our own understanding. We will be our own king. This is the history that that Jesus recounts in this parable. The, The people of Israel have proven to be a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people, failing to bring forth the fruits of righteousness again and again and again. And on top of that, persecuting those whom God graciously sends to call them to repentance. And now that rebellion, that long history of failure, is reaching its climax in their rejection of Jesus. We, We see this in verse 13. Notice what he says. He says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I I read those words, they they, they rub me the wrong way. They they make the owner sound weak. It makes it sound as if the owner is sort of rubbing his hands and wondering, what am I going to do with these troublesome tenants? I I just don't know how to handle them. I just don't know what to to do with them. We we sometimes say that as parents. We we don't know what to do with this particular child or with uh, this particular situation. And it sounds to me that that's the way that Jesus is presenting the owner. But I don't think that's what Jesus intends. Clearly, Jesus does not present the owner as weak in verse 16 when he comes to destroy the tenants. So so clearly, Jesus doesn't think the owner is weak. Clearly, Jesus doesn't think the owner is, is rubbing his hands, wondering what he is going to do. No, Jesus doesn't intend to present the owner as weak, but rather, he intends to present the owner as patient. What he intends for us to see in the owner's question is not weakness, but unimaginable kindness. The owner knows the outcome of the tenant's rebellion. He knows what is in store for them. But like a loving, gracious father pleading with their child, he is trying to figure out what will move them to repentance, what will move them to to turn from their sins and to fulfill their obligations and thereby avoid his wrath. He says, I have good in store for you. I have blessings stored up for you. Will you not receive it? Will you not hear the word of peace that I would speak to you? Will you not know my blessing? Perhaps you will listen to my son. It is the owner pleading with the people that they might repent and turn back to him and know his blessing. And it's important for us to see this because this is a hard passage. It is a hard passage in a hard section of Luke's gospel. We've had hard passage after hard passage here lately as as Jesus announces judgment on those who reject him. And his judgment, his condemnation is severe. He is judging absolutely But we must see that this judgment comes only after a period of patient endurance. God does not judge his people for a single violation after a long history of of faithfulness. I think that's the way we sometimes think. We we, we think, you know, well, God demands perfection and I've really done my best, but I just fell a hair short. And so now I'm under God's wrath. God's such a stern master. We, we, we may not say it that way. We may not say it quite so cruelly, but we, we think that. Well, God demands 100, and I got a 98, and now, now I'm failing. But that's not the picture that the, the Bible presents at all. 
We are are not those who who did our best and fell a hair short, but we are rebels against the king. We are those who who treated his servants with contempt. We are those who saw the son and rather than bowing to him and giving him his due, instead said, we will kill the son and take the inheritance for ourselves. We will not be ruled by him. We will be our own king. And this is what Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to see the truth about himself, that God is patient. He is kind. He is long-suffering. But the day of reckoning will come. There is a day on which he will call all men to account. There is a day when his wrath will be poured out. We see this in verse 16. When the tenants see the son, as I said, they, rather than respecting him, they, they say to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. Now that's a little hard to, to follow. Obviously the tenants don't believe that the owner is going to make them the rightful heir if they kill the son. That's not what's, what's going on here. But rather they think that they can steal the vineyard for themselves if they get rid of the rightful owner. If they get rid of the heir, the, the land will default to those who are taking care of it. Ownership is nine-tenths of the law. And so they think, well, you listen, we're on the land. If we kill the rightful owner, it will be ours. And this is a picture of of man's rebellion. This is a picture of how man has held God in contempt from the very beginning. In the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden, this is what man did. They, They assumed to take the kingdom for themselves rather than honoring God as king, rather than serving him with their lives. They sought to take it for themselves. And this rebellion was repeated by Israel. Israel reenacted Adam's failure. God chose them to be the seed of his new creation. He entered into a covenant with with Abraham that he might make all things new. He chose them to be the agents of his redeemed and restored creation. They chose them to be the the rulers of his coming kingdom, his kingdom that would be reestablished on earth as it is in heaven. But instead of of seeing this call as a great blessing, instead of seeing the opportunity to, to serve their king, they rather saw it as an opportunity to steal the kingdom for themselves. They thought God was there to serve them, not the other way around. And so when God finally sent his son to the people of Israel, when God finally sent the anointed one, the Messiah, the long promised Savior, the one who would sit on David's throne forever and ever. He was not welcomed as a king. He was not welcomed as a savior, but rather he was rejected as a threat. Because it meant that if he was Lord, they could no longer be their own Lord. And what is the consequence of this rejection? Jesus asks that very question in verse 15. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And then, of course, he answers his own question. He tells us plainly, the owner will come and destroy those tenants. And he will give the vineyard to others. In some sense, that's the punchline. That's the the point of this parable. That's that's the point that Jesus is, is driving to. It's what he wants them to see. The kingdom will be taken away from Israel and given to others. As I said, it's important for us to see that the vineyard itself is not destroyed. 
God's kingdom will remain. God's purposes for his kingdom will be fulfilled. His his kingdom will be established. And as Daniel 7 long ago foretold, it will grow to fill the whole earth. All things will be made new. God's purposes will stand. But the leaders of Israel and all those who follow him, all those who, who reject the Son, they will have no share. In the coming kingdom. Because they failed to produce its fruit. And they failed to honor its king. Of course when the people hear this. When they, when they hear Jesus tell this parable. They understand what he is saying. And their response is surely not. May it, may it never be. Now they're not doubting that the landowner would, would treat tenants in that way. They, they know that if, if there were tenants like these, if there were tenants who, who rejected his service and killed his son, that of course they would be destroyed. They're not doubting the veracity of the story. Rather, they're doubting that the parable is an accurate picture of their relationship with God. Surely not, they say. There, there is no way that we would reject the Messiah. There is no way that, that we would incur God's wrath. Obviously, Jesus, you have, have misread history. But when Jesus hears their unbelief, notice what it says. He says, he looks directly at them and says, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You heard it this morning in our call to worship. It's a quote from Psalm 118. Interestingly, the same psalm that the people were quoting during Jesus' triumphal entry when they shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as you heard this morning, the theme of Psalm 118 is the steadfast love of God for his people. That's the theme repeated. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. It says it again and again. And then the psalmist explains what this looks like. He says it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man, even to trust in princes. For out of my distress I called to the Lord, the psalmist says, and the Lord answered me. The Lord set me free. All the nations surrounded me. I was was pushed hard. I was falling. But the Lord helped me. He has become my salvation. And it is in that context, it is in this celebration of the Lord's steadfast love that he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does he mean? Well, As we look at how that verse is quoted in the New Testament, it's clear to us that the stone is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The stone is Jesus. Jesus himself, or Peter himself, says this explicitly in in Acts chapter 4. He says, this Jesus, speaking to the crowd, speaking to the people of Jerusalem, he says, this Jesus whom you killed, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has now become the cornerstone. So what are we saying about Jesus? What is the the psalmist saying about the stone of his his salvation? He is saying that from from the world's perspective, trusting the Lord seemed like a vain hope. It seemed like a foolish thing to do. It would have been better for him to to seek out help from princes, to seek out help from Assyria, to seek out help from, from Egypt, to seek out help from somebody of strength surrounding him. 
But the psalmist says, no, despite the protest of the world, despite how foolish it looked in their eyes, my hope was set on the stone of God's promise. And while they rejected that stone, while they thought that was a foolish hope, in the end, God has proven faithful. And he has made that rejected stone to be the cornerstone of all that he is going to accomplish, to make the cornerstone of his salvation. And what Jesus is saying is that I am the incarnation of that salvation. I am the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I am the stone who was rejected by the world, who looked like a vain hope to the world, who has now become the cornerstone of all that God is doing to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I am the cornerstone. But notice, the cornerstone is a stone that was rejected. It was a stone that did not look impressive in the eyes of the world. And so Jesus is is saying to his opponents, you should not be surprised to hear me say that when the Messiah comes, he is rejected, that he is not received, that they do not see him for who he is. This is what the psalmist says. The stone of God's salvation will be rejected, but the rejection of man will not undermine the purposes of God. And so here is Jesus' warning. He says, listen, do not be surprised, but take notice. Do not be surprised, but be warned. For notice what he says in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will, they will be crushed. Jesus is adapting a well-known Jewish phrase. There was a a phrase, a a proverb of sorts that the Jews would use. It said, if a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. And if a pot falls on a stone, woe to the pot. And so either way, regardless of, of how the encounter happens, woe to the pot. Now when the Jews said this, they were, they were speaking about their military prowess. They were saying, if someone attacks us, woe to them. If we attack someone, woe to them. Whoever we go to battle with, woe to them, for we will be victorious. It's the way they used the phrase, but now Jesus is turning it back on them and saying, no, no. Whether you fall on the stone or whether the stone falls on you, woe to you. In other words, the one who rejects the stone... That one will be broken to pieces and crushed. And obviously Jesus means this as a warning to those who, who are rejecting and those who have taken their stand against him. It's, what's the, it's the theme of this entire passage. Jesus is warning the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, those who, who have taken their stand against him, and he's warning all of the people who will soon follow them. He is saying that by rejecting me, you are bringing God's judgment down upon your own heads by rejecting me you are rejecting any share in God's inheritance you simply cannot have the kingdom without the king if you will not honor the king you will have no share in the kingdom this is Jesus point this is the point that he is he is driving home if you will not honor the king You can have no share in the kingdom. You may think 
that you can take the throne for yourself. You may think that you can be the Lord of your own life. You may, you may think that you can manipulate God into serving you rather than you serving Him. But in truth, if you reject the King, you lose the kingdom. For the day is coming. The day is coming. He is patient. He is long-suffering. But the day is coming when God will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Obviously, this was partially fulfilled in uh, A.D. 70 when when Rome comes and, and destroys Jerusalem. But that is but a foreshadow of the coming day of the Lord when He will call all men to account. It's a a warning that that stands even today as we continue to wait for His final return. And the question before us this morning is simply this, what will we do with the warning? How will we respond? We're told in, in verse 19, which we'll look at further next week, but we're told in verse 19 that when the leaders heard it, They sought to lay hands on him that very hour. They were were no longer willing to wait. They were putting their plans into motion now. They were going to get rid of this guy. They were were tired of him stirring up the people. And of course, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the the leaders continued to respond the same way. We're we're told that in Acts chapter 4, when when Peter quoted this very same verse to the leaders in in his day, they, they arrested them and they told them to speak no more to any this name and when he refused to listen they arrested him again and tried to beat him into submission they simply would not hear the call to repentance and so the question is how will we respond how will we respond to this if you are if you are not a christian if you have never received and rested upon jesus christ alone for your salvation then you need to hear this you you need to understand that 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 jesus is not like a diet guru There's there's lots of diets that might work. There's lots of ways that you could lose weight this coming year. And you don't have to follow one diet or or another diet. There's there's lots of options. And that's the way a lot of people hear the gospel. They think, well, Jesus has a plan for life. And his plan works. It's good. If 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 it works for you, great. But there are other plans that might work too. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way this is. This isn't either or. I am the king. Yes, I am a A good king. Yes, I am a king who gives peace to his people. Yes, I am a king who brings blessings to his his kingdom. But I am the king. And if you will not bow to me, then you will be called to account for your rebellion. And if you are not a Christian, you need to know that. Jesus is not an option. He's not one plan among many that might work to make your life better. He is your sovereign and rightful king. And he's calling you to bring forth the fruit of repentance. course this parable is not primarily for those who are not believers at all but it is for those who are professing believers this this parable is is for those who who profess to be christians it's not about who the tenants are after all they are the the leaders of israel they are the people who call themselves the people of god and this is the purpose and reason for this story see the whole lord is a salvation debate we wonder can we have jesus as the lord can we have jesus as the savior and that says, no, if you will not honor me as teacher, if you will not serve me as master, then you will have no share in my kingdom. You are a professing Christian who has no interest in in serving God with your life, who has no interest in 
knowing that you deny yourself to follow after Jesus says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. The day is coming when you will be called to account. But don't miss the good news that's here. It's it's hard to see, maybe. There's a lot of warning here. There's a lot of uh, hard sayings here. But there is good news here. Because remember again what Jesus said. He says, the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. God's purposes have been fulfilled. The kingdom is being established. And the invitation still stands. The day of wrath stands on the horizon. The day of of coming to account is still there, but it is not yet. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when we can repent and turn to him in faith. Today is the day when we can receive his blessing. We will never bring forth the fruit of righteousness perfectly in this life, but we don't have to. It's not about earning your way in. Jesus knows that we are sinners and he died to save us. He died to to call us to himself. It's not about earning it by our righteousness. It is about repenting. It is about acknowledging who he is. And it is about endeavoring in humble reliance upon his grace to live as becomes his followers. And so what is your posture towards him this morning? That's the question. I'm not asking how well you've done. I'm not asking if you earned your inheritance. I'm asking what's your posture? Is he your king? Or do you stand defiantly against him? When he sends his service to call you to repentance, do you repent and turn back to him for his favor? Or do you treat his servants with scorn and contempt and say, I will not listen to you? If you stand against him, you stand under his judgment. But if you bow to him, if you humbly acknowledge your complete dependence on him, if you call him your Lord, then hear his promise. I have become the cornerstone of God's kingdom. And through me, you have a share in all the good that I am bringing. Through me, the kingdom can be yours. Through me, you can have an eternal inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. For he is the cornerstone of the salvation of his people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All those who call upon him will never be put to shame, but will have eternal life. And because this is true, this is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your grace. We even thank you for the warnings. Father, it is hard for us to hear them sometimes. It is, it is hard for us to know what to do with them. But we thank you that you love us enough to warn us. And that you love us enough to call us to faith and repentance. And I pray now that you would grant to each one here that repentance that is unto life. And that faith that receives eternal blessing. Father God, may you do this even now for our good and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.